Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. I truly believe that higher education is a pathway to achieving the American dream. But before students can start their higher education journey, they need a solid foundation in their K-12 education. Once again this week, I will be turning over the podcast to Professor Andy Trees, who is co-chair of the programming committee for the American Dream Reconsidered Conference. In this week's episode, Andy will be interviewing Professor Ralph Martiri. Ralph will be introducing our November 2nd panel, The Prospects, Hopes, and Failures of Educational Achievement at K-12. The panel will be moderated by Amisha Cross, a Roosevelt alumna. She'll be talking with Illinois State Senator Kimberly Lightford, Illinois State Senator Christina Passioni-Zayas, and former California Congressman Mike Honda. Perhaps nothing is as crucial to the American dream as education, and it is absolutely essential that every student receives a high-quality K-12 education in order to succeed in the modern world. Unfortunately, both the nation and the state of Illinois have historically failed to provide that high-quality public education to most low-income and minority students. Ralph and Andy will discuss recent reforms in education that address some of the inequitable educational practices of the past, as well as what we can do to make K-12 education better in the years to come. The American Dream Reconsidered Conference will be held from November 1st to November 4th. For a full list of panels and to register, please visit roosevelt.edu backslash American Dream. Enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to And Justice for All. I'm Andrew Trees, one of the programming co-chairs for this year's American Dream Reconsidered Conference. President Alexa Day has kindly turned the podcast over to me to talk with some of the people involved in this year's conference, which will be held from November 1st through November 4th. In this week's episode, we are fortunate to have a chance to talk with Professor Ralph Martier. He organized our November 2nd panel, The Prospects, Hopes, and Failures of Educational Achievement, K-12. The panel has several distinguished politicians from the state and the national level. I'll let him talk about those a little bit later. Professor Martier is the Arthur Rubloff Endowed Professor of Public Policy at Roosevelt University and the Executive Director of the Center for Tax and Budget Accountability, a think tank committed to ensuring fair policies in areas such as education and the workplace, as well as promoting opportunity for all regardless of race, ethnicity, or income. He was appointed by Governor J.B. Pritzker to serve on the state's Budget and Innovation Committee, and he served as a member of the Equity and Excellence in Education Commission established by Congress during the Obama administration. 
At Roosevelt, he teaches a range of courses that cover various aspects of public policy with a specialty in fiscal and educational policy. And he also regularly reaches out to the public. He appears on TV and radio quite frequently, and he writes a regular column about these issues for several different newspapers. So it's great to have him today. Ralph, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me, Andy. How are you? I'm great, thanks. It's nice to see you, even albeit virtually. I'm going to start with a personal question. Clearly, you've been interested in these issues for a long time. What was your own K-12 through educational experience like? Well, interesting, to say the least. So I, I, I grew up in a relatively low income community on the East Coast. And first through eighth grade, I went to a Catholic school that was very low cost Catholic school. And, you know, our nuns were tough, but they they really did a good job of, you know, giving us materials to challenge the kids at their different levels. And then I got into public school and I thought, oh, my goodness, why am I doing stuff I did in fifth or sixth grade? And this was this was in high school. So, you know, my public school, especially my high school, 400 white kids, 400 black kids, uh, 350 Latinx kids, all low income. And you can imagine it was probably not the best place uh, to receive an education. Uh, Our guidance counselor was actually out of uh, central casting from the Monsters, (laughs) Inc. movie Uh, with the cigarette holder and everything else. So. You know, I always knew that education mattered as a kid, right? Because you you could you could just tell that your peers that were in more affluent communities were doing so much better and having so much more opportunities. And then, you know, I went into law school. I was a lawyer and blah blah blah. But I got to meet a woman named Dawn Clark Netch. I don't know if you ever met Dawn, but when she ran for governor, I served as her deputy issues director, and she had a big big part of her campaign focused on what was called the Netch Plan, which was raising taxes in in a way that you could invest more in K-12 education because the state of Illinois had been doing such a bad job. And that just, you know, hook, line and sinker. I had to research all those issues for Dawn. And Dawn is one of those elected officials that really full of integrity, high-end intellect, cared about what she was doing, understood what the two words public and service meant, especially when they went together. And so it was an honor to work for her, but I just I just caught the bug. And then looking at the data from that point on, it was very clear to me that education was tied into economic and social justice and core civil rights. You can't be a functioning member of society, of, of a democracy. You can't exercise your rights in a thoughtful way, unless you have a high quality education, you can't be competitive in the modern economy unless now you have some sort of college degree. Uh, You know, it used to be you could graduate high school and get a good job that would put a car or two in the garage and a kid or two through college. No more. Uh, What the data show is the only cohort of workers in America that have actually seen their incomes grow at a rate greater than inflation since 1980 have a college degree. So uh, the, the importance of a K-12 education that, that arms students with the numeracy literacy skills they need to go on and credential themselves to the next level is, is greater than it's ever been. And those statistically meaningful correlations keep growing. So that's how I got into it and, and why I've continued to pursue it. So I'm curious, that's, uh, that's a really interesting career story where you're working as a lawyer, I assume, and some sort of like for a corporation or something like that. How did you make that shift from doing that to basically getting deeply involved in politics? Not that lawyers aren't, don't frequently do that, but I'm just curious how you made that, that move. 
Well, you know, I, I, I thought, so once again, going back to the lack of guidance counseling in high school, <laughs> I, I, you know, where my guidance counselor said, why are you thinking about college? We have all these great factories. We can get a good paying job right out of high school. I'm like, yeah, no, Miss Flanagan, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so the bottom line was, I thought you had to become an attorney to do public policy. I just thought law. Okay. Laws come from lawyers. And so there you go. And so that was wrong. Uh, there's so many different career paths to, to getting into public policy, including getting your public administration master's from a great school like Roosevelt University. But the bottom line is I thought you had to. And so then and then when you go through law school, I went to University of Michigan Law School and I did have a scholarship. But even with a scholarship, I came out of there with close to one hundred thousand dollars in student debt. Uh, you know, those are golden handcuffs. So you go into the private mm-hmm. sector so you could actually pay them off. And and so I just kept active as a lawyer, uh, working on campaigns and, and doing primarily policy development work, because that's where my interest has always been in sort of identifying societal issues and then creating solutions to them that are based on research and best practices. That's always been my gig. I'm a nerd at, at, at a very core level, Andy. And, and so that kind of thing actually excites me. So I always kept my hand in it. And then I was a partner at a firm doing mergers and acquisitions and those kinds of things. And then I was approached by the Woods Fund of Chicago. They were putting together a new nonprofit, and it was going to be focused on tying the fiscal side of the ledger to the policy side of the ledger, because they felt like that was the one big missing piece in the public policy discussion was really how capacity impacts programs and outcomes. And they said, hey, we'd like to talk to you because of the work you did on the NETCH campaign. And they offered me the initial position as the first ever executive director of this nonprofit in 2000. I said, so you want me to take a massive pay cut to run a new nonprofit that's going to tell people taxes are good. And here's why taxes are good. So I'm always going to be the most unpopular person in any room I go into. And they yeah, that's a hard forget. sell in America. That's, uh, yeah. that's a tough, that's a tough hill. But I said, yes. And so I did it. Uh, and now I have to call out my wife. Thankfully, I have a very supportive wife that was willing to let me take a major pay cut uh, so that I could do something that I had more of an interest in. And I've been at the Center for Tax and Budget Accountability since the year 2000 when it was formed. And uh, we've had a number of legislative successes. And, you know, we, we try to work in a way where uh, we promote social and economic justice by having or ensuring really that major public systems are designed around best or evidence-based practices, are designed with the capacity to meet demographically driven needs, and then are sustainably financed over time. And, and you know, that's the mission, which, which means no one wants to fund us because we gore oxes in both political parties <laughs> all the time. But the bottom line is it's, it's, it's led to some pretty nice policy successes, which we at the center are kind of proud of. Justifiably so. So I have to ask. So here's. So everyone says, you know, you ne- you don't you never want to know how the sausage gets made, right? So you've clearly been deeply involved in the legislative process and trying to get these things passed. I know there's a lot of horse training that goes on, and it's you know the the enemy of the good is the perfect, and so it's a it's a messy process. It's not you know some uh, public ideal untouched by uh, unsullied by selfish, self-interested concerns. So without naming names and getting yourself in trouble, can you give us some sense of how the sausage gets made, how you get the legislation passed that you're hoping for in these kind of areas? 
Well, it's really challenging. And maybe I should focus on, since we're talking a little bit about education, one of the biggest successes you know we've had, and that is uh, I co-authored the state's new school funding formula for K-12 education. It's called the Evidence-Based Model for Student Success. And it, it really is tied into this great research that was done by professors, one at the University of Wisconsin, one at USC, that looked at those educational practices, which over time have a statistically meaningful correlation to enhancing student achievement, and then it funds them. But it doesn't just fund them for your whole state, it really funds it by district. So it adjusts the amount of resources a school district receives predicated on the unique student population it serves. So there's automatic adjustments in the formula based on your concentration, for instance, of low-income children or English learners or special needs kids, which really all the evidence shows, right? You you could get equal academic outcomes, let's say, between a low-income kid and a non-low-income kid. You just have to spend a little bit more on the low-income kid to overcome some of the hindrances in reinforcing education those kids on average, you know, have to Mm -hmm. face. So great. It's an evidence-based model. Who could be against that? It does all that stuff. Well, what we found was our initial discussions around the evidence-based model all focused on how it would make our school system far more equitable than it currently is. And really, Illinois, when you compared us to the rest of the country, literally had the least equitable school funding formula in America. We had the really we did the greatest discrepancy between the per pupil funding in school districts that had very low poverty counts versus those that have very high poverty counts. So that's not the place you want to be. And especially when you have the fifth largest economy of any state in America and the sixth largest population, you want to be dead last in this category. And, and, and I talk about the economy because it talks to the state's capacity, right? So we have almost a $900 billion annual economy in Illinois, $900 billion. If we were an independent country, that would be the 20th largest economy in the world. So we certainly wow. have the capacity to invest adequately in education. We just weren't doing it. So this evidence-based model, because of those automatic adjustments in the formula I told you about that were designed to comport with your unique student population, very equitable in how it distributed new resources. Uh, that only got us so far honestly. And and usually with the people that would support equity in any event, oh, it's for the poor starving children, you could tax my dreams too. But those aren't, those aren't the people that we needed to support it because the hard math really when you're doing policy work is 50% of the legislators plus one. And that means you've got to get legislators who both are somewhat more, let's say, conservative in their worldview than the the folks you're working on generally with progressive policy initiatives, number one, and who certainly represent more conservative communities. So the first thing we did in in the framing change when we were advocating for this with legislators was say, hey, yeah, the equity stuff is great, but look, it's tied to the evidence of what works. You're for funding only what works, right? You're for funding good educational practices and, and seeing better student outcomes. Hard for a conservative even to be against that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's something conservatives like, liberals, it doesn't matter your worldview, that sounds really good. But another thing that more conservative worldview folks liked was, and by the way, it funds what a district would need to implement these evidence-based practices and not a penny more. 
so it's accountable to taxpayers as well, right? This isn't because there's always been the complaint, well, education's a black hole, no matter what you give it, they want more money, blah, blah. No, 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 no. We get up to adequate capacity here. We know we've armed the school districts with the resources they need. So if they're not producing good outcomes, then you look for other things to fix. Well, conservatives like that as well. So it got us in the ball game, but it didn't get the legislation passed. So it got us close. But then, you know, in education, there's a lot of non-evidence-based stuff that mm-hmm. certain worldviews support. One of them is school choice. To, to, to be very clear, school choice is not an evidence-based practice. There is no correlation whatsoever between having school choice in a system and better student outcomes. And, and, and so to get this legislation passed, we had to get a certain number of Republican votes and convince a very conservative Republican governor, Browner, mm-hmm. to sign it because he vetoed it the first time we got it passed through the House and the Senate. And the only way to get all of them on board was to include a tax incentive for people to fund and corporations, by the way, to fund scholarships for other people to send their kids to private schools uh, okay. or school choice. A little horse well, trading. Horse trading. Now it was a you know, it was about a seventy-five million dollar program. The evidence-based model is gonna drive about six or seven billion dollars new money into public education. So this horse trade came about and it and it was very funny, you know, when I was called on to testify in committee in favor of the legislation, I said, Well, I'm in favor of the legislation overall, but I have to tell you there are a couple of elements of it that I don't think are going to lead to better educational outcomes. But to get the bill passed, we support it. And so, you know, it's just been a very uh, interesting thing. And that's just one example. This kind mm-hmm. of thing happens all the time in legislation. I think uh, former Senator James Meeks, the reverend from the south side of Chicago, do you know, James has one of the uh-huh. largest Baptist churches. I used to do a lot of work with Reverend Meeks. And, and at one point, we were working on a different school funding initiative, and uh, we were running into some resistance from affluent folks that, once again, wanted money for private schools, et cetera. And it was just really frustrating me. And Reverend Meeks looked at me and he smiles. He goes, Ralph, just got to understand, when the legislative train leaves the station, it always gets loaded up with the rich man's luggage. And, <laughs> and, and that's... That's a lesson I had to swallow because I was a little too much of, as you said, Andy, and I think rightfully, the perfect becoming the enemy of the good. To me, doing policy work and research, geez, you see, you know, what the evidence-based practices would indicate you should do. There's some very clear things. Why would you muck that up with something the evidence shows doesn't work? And the answer is politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, 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 you really have to swallow a lot of things with a grain of salt to get something that's mostly really good done. I'm sure once we get off the podcast, I'll get I'll get to tell me the even darker tales that you can't share uh, publicly about all of that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not naming very many names <laughs> in this either. So, uh, you know, it's very interesting to hear about that. I'm wondering, is the reason Illinois was did, dead last in, in the inequity and in funding because it relies so much on local property taxes? Is that what's driving that? Or is there something weird about Illinois in terms of how it does its its formula for schools and funding? Well, let me think about it. Yes. So the, 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 the property tax issue is really an issue. But then, so what drove that? I mean, really, when, when you do policy work and you're trying to make sure 
policy is working the way it's supposed to. It's really systems analysis. And that, so that's what we do at CTBA. So we had this education funding system that was over-reliant on property taxes. In fact, so over-reliant, we ranked first in the nation of the portion of K-12 funding covered by property taxes, over 67%. We're still at about 66%, by the way. The new funding formula has put more state money in, but we got a long way to go. And only about 25% of the cost of public education is paid for by state-based tax revenue. Uh, Mm -hmm. The national average, by the way, is for a state to cover about 46 47%, and for property taxes to cover 44%. If you're wondering where the gap is, the the feds cover 8 to 10% every year. So that's how the math all works out. So why was Illinois so over-reliant, ranking first in the nation in reliance on property taxes and 50th in reliance on state-based revenue? And the answer was tax policy at the state level. Mm. The state had a structural deficit, meaning every single year, even if the state didn't add or expand one program, its costs rose like that, but its revenue rose below it. And there was a little gap between cost growth and revenue growth, that structural deficit. And then over time, that gets bigger and bigger. So what the state opted to do was say, hey, there's there's another revenue source that could fund schools other than our state taxes, local property taxes. Let's just keep pushing the obligation down there. So they did this. And in the early, I don't know, 90s, about 91, 92, Illinois was still covering about 46, 47% of the cost of education from state taxes. Now we're down to that long ago. Yeah. So you can see the decline came rapidly and it was in response to this structural deficit. So that's what I mean. Systems analysis come into play where we said, all right, if you really care about schools all having the capacity to educate every student that walks in their door, no matter where that school is located, rich community, small, uh, poor community, you can't rely on property taxes as your main funding sources. It always has to be a funding source. It's stable revenue, but it can't be your main source because if it's your main source, you've tied the quality of public education a student's going to receive to the property wealth of the community in which the student lives. Inequitable by definition. I mean, you know, on its face. So we had to find a way to get to shift responsibility back to the state and have a funding formula that would provide for that based on the evidence. So now, you know, we've got the funding formula in place. We still don't have the state's capacity. So the state, you know, this year was able to put more money into K-12 education. And in fact, since the evidence-based model has been in place, it passed into law in 2017. So it's been in place five fiscal years now, for those fiscal years, the states actually put in $300 million or more on a year-to-year basis in mm-hmm. UK-12 funding. Uh, one year, it had to hold it constant because of its fiscal problems. And so the total growth is over $1.2 billion in new funding. That's historic for Illinois. The bad news is there's no way once this federal relief money runs out, the state's going to be able to continue making these investments. So I, I love the fact that this is all evidence based. I'm a bit of a nerd myself in that respect. Um, tell me what are you know, the- we've always gotten it along for a reason, Andy. I think you just identified. <laughs> so I'm curious, what are the kind of maybe one or two or even three things that you've seen come out of this research and then implemented that you're kind of most excited about? Where you've really seen like, wow, this makes an incredible difference for elementary education. Yeah, tier two interventionalist really jumps to the top of the list. And these are 
tutors that are faculty members with specific training that work with students that don't need IEPs, they don't need individualized education plans, but for whatever societal reasons, they've somewhat fallen behind. So I'm just going to use the nerd first and then tell you (laughs) how it works out. So to have a statistically meaningful correlation in this study, you needed an effect size of 0.25. So there you go. That was what you were looking for. Well, the impact of a well-run tier two interventionalist program is 2.5. Wow. Times statistically significant. Right. That's a, that's a, that's a big, that's a big, that's a very impressive. Yeah. So that really, it's really been shown when it's implemented. Well, I mean, you can't just hire a bunch of folks, call them tier two interventionalists and, and say your job is done, right? You have to do everything with fidelity. You have to hire quality people, but when it's done right, it really, really enhances student outcomes across the board. And let's talk about student outcomes. It's not just scores on standardized tests, although that's clearly something that the political system really wants to see movement on. It's graduation rates, it's dropout rates, it's college matriculation rates, it's dis- disciplinary rates by race and income. It's it's all these educational outcomes that really matter. It's attendance in and scoring high on AP classes and tests. So the bottom line is these tier two interventionalists, one of the strategies that if it's implemented with fidelity and funded really makes a difference, even in communities of substantial poverty, really moves the needle forward. Another thing that's shown to have some advantage is evidence-based professional development on things like implicit bias and culturally appropriate pedagogy to really, you know, counter the structural racism that's in K-12 education. So I want to define what I mean by structural racism, because it, it there's a lot of definitions of that term floating around there. But when you look at the K-12 system, what you see, and, and I, I serve on something called the professional review panel, it was actually appointed by Governor Rauner, it's part of ISBE, and we look at the implementation of this new school funding formula, make Uh, annual recommendations to the legislature and governor on how to either improve it or modify it or whatever to make the model work better. And one thing I asked for at, at the Illinois State Board of Education was, can you run a regression analysis to see if there's a statistically meaningful correlation between race and predicted academic outcome that's completely independent of income status? And I couldn't get the data sets to do that, but ISBE has them. And they ran it, and sure enough, it is. So what that tells you, and it's negative for black and brown students. And so what that tells you is the system structurally has created barriers to learning for African-American kids. Mm. And and so that's a, that's structurally racist. And, and it's it's a unique challenge, right, for the K-12 system because most of the challenges education faces are student-centric. So if a student's an English learner, we understand what the issue is, right? They're learning English while they're learning in English. That creates certain challenges <laughs> for the student, but you can put in supports around those challenges. If a student comes from a low-income background, once again, these are on average, right? So there, there are exceptions to every rule, but on average, what you see is that student doesn't have education reinforced at home as much as a student who's not low income. So once again, we can put in supports for that and we know what those supports happen to be, blah, blah, blah. Get to a K-12 
kid who happens to be African-American, there's nothing innately about being African-American that creates any disadvantage to learning. <laughs> so when you see these things, what you're saying, ah, then the structure is discriminating against or denying opportunity to this kid because of that kid's skin color. So then the analysis flips away from, well, what supports do we put in for the kid to, hey, what do we identify in our system mm-hmm. that it's doing wrong and how do we fix our system? And so that's where things like, you know, the professional development on implicit bias, you know, lower expectations and and those kinds of things really comes in. It has to be evidence-based. It has to be continued. It has to be incorporated into practice. But it really has been shown to, over time, get rid of these differentials and outcome by race, which we really, you know, the educational system needs to be designed so that every student can walk in and find it to be a welcoming environment that meets his or her needs. And, and, and we know it's not doing that now, but I mean, there's some of these evidence-based practices that do. Well, you know, so I think, uh, so uh, this is where obviously the American Dream Reconsider Conference, and this is this panel on education is part of that. And I think we both probably agree we're biased, we're professors, we're inclined to believe this, but that education is the key to that American dream, right? That we need to make sure it remains sort of a broad avenue for everyone and not just a narrow path for a few. So uh, my, my final question for you is if you had a magic wand and could change one thing about K through 12 education that would address this, make it more equitable, make an effect the American dream more kind of a, a, a broadly realized dream for all citizens, what would you change? I'd I'd change the national system for funding K-12 education to make it look like the Illinois system, Hmm. but then I'd fully fund it. Now, you'd probably want to phase in that funding over a four or five year period, right? Because you've put all the money in at once. There's not going to be enough qualified people to handle right. it. That's, that's an issue. That's a real life right. You have to kind of build up the core of people and the institutional structures to be able to handle that kind of money. Right. But that would make the biggest difference in the world, which is why I'm so excited about my panel, actually. So I've actually been asked to draft such a piece of legislation by former Congressman Mike Honda, who uh, lives in California, will be part of our panel. And he he was one of the two congresswomen that established that Equity and Excellence Commission you talked about. It was in the Civil Rights Division of the Federal Department of Education. And really what our charge was, was to look at how systems of finance related to access to opportunity and education and student outcomes along racial income, et cetera, lines. And of course, we found that it did, and, and sadly, negatively. <laughs> so if we could get the federal government up to the point where it's investing adequately in education nationwide, then no matter where that student lives, Mississippi, Arkansas, Illinois, wherever, that kid could walk into her or his neighborhood school and receive an education that meets the child's needs. And, and that, is, that is actually an investment more than an expense because it, it pays a benefit. I mean, if we could get uh, our education system up to, to that level, I mean, there's been some projections done that it could mean upwards of $80 trillion over the next 30 years to That's our economy. Uh, you know, just big numbers be- because of the differential make in skill sets and opportunity, et-, et cetera. So that'd be the one thing I would do. And we're going to talk a little bit about that at the panel. I've, I have drafted this legislation. Our chief sponsor is an Illinois congresswoman, Robin Kelly, 
who's uh, just a wonderful person. And uh, Congressman Honda is helping us push that on the Hill. And our other members of the panel, actually, uh, really great folks. You have uh, Senator Kim Lightford, who was the chief co-sponsor of the evidence-based formula in Illinois uh, for at least eight years before it passed. I'd been working with Senator Lightford on that, so it'd be great to have her thoughts on it. Uh, Christina Peccioni Zayas, who's, she's used to be on the Illinois State Board of Education, actually. She's a state senator now, looks at this from a Latinx standpoint and has a background in early childhood and so can really talk about how the educational system from literally cradle on up through uh, college makes a big difference in an individual's trajectory for where their life could be. And maybe I'm most proud of the fact that our moderator is going to be one of Misha Cross, who is a graduate of Roosevelt University, is doing cable TV and programming out in Washington, D.C., and knows education inside and out and is just brilliant. So folks will get to hear one of their former colleagues from Roosevelt University moderate our panel. Well, Ralph, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, and thank you for putting together this panel, which looks fascinating. I know we probably just scratched the surface of some of these things. I'd love to hear more about it, so I, I'm excited to hear uh, what goes on. The conference, again, is November 1st to 4th, uh, the American Dream Reconsidered Conference, and if you want to listen to this podcast or any podcasts from the past, uh, you can just go to roosevelt.edu backslash podcasts and subscribe. Ralph, thanks again for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Andy. Peace. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>